Let us pray. Father, through weak, fallible human words, may we come to know your living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. To start off today, let's have a round of Anglican trivia to tell how hardcore Anglican you really are. Uh, Who said it? I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. C.S. Lewis, yes, that's right. If you answered C.S. Lewis, you are truly Anglican. Um, If not, then uh, see me after church. I'm just kidding. Um, No, but it's an important quote uh, because it highlights the emphasis of, uh, it emphasizes sight. And sight is very important. In fact, besides taste, sight is probably the one sense that I would hate to lose the most if I had to pick one. If I lost hearing tomorrow, I wouldn't really be that sad because it means I wouldn't have to listen to talking heads and political commentators on the news. But losing sight would be very, very difficult, particularly in our very visual culture. Today our readings have to do with this theme of sight. And as usual, in speaking to that theme, they address the idea of physical sight, but they point us to a deeper spiritual reality. In our Isaiah reading, there were three major movements in the text. The first movement is the writer crying out for justice, saying, We wait for light, and lo, there is darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope like the blind along a wall. We stumble at noon, as in the twilight, among the vigorous, as though we were dead. We all growl like bears, like doves we moan mournfully. We wait for justice, but there is none, for salvation is far from us. But in the second movement of the text, the next verse, uh, the reason for this injustice becomes clearer. It's not something outside of the writer That's a problem. The problem's not out there, but rather the author makes the point that for our transgressions before you are many and our sins testify against us, our transgressions are indeed with us. And we know our iniquities transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from following our God. Yet this realization is not... This realization that the problem is not somewhere out there but in here causes the author to look elsewhere for resolution. And he finds it in God. He will come to Zion as redeemer to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. So we had our Isaiah reading. And it pains me to do this, but we don't have time to talk about our Hebrews reading, really. I mean, we could, but we would be here for a long time. But then we have our reading from the Gospel of Mark. And in this gospel lesson, a poor blind beggar named Bartimaeus hears that Jesus was passing by. And so he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people around him hear him shouting and crying out. And they tell him, be quiet. But that makes him cry out even louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus hears this and he stops. And when he stops... He calls Bartimaeus to him. And when Bartimaeus hears this, he springs up and comes to Jesus quickly, vigorously, with enthusiasm. And when he arrives, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? To which Bartimaeus replies, my teacher, let me see again. 
And Jesus says, go, your faith has made you well. And immediately Bartimaeus is healed and he leaves, goes from that place and follows Jesus. These two lessons are an interesting pair because both of them use metaphors to describe the human experience and uh, condition. Blindness is an interesting theme in both passages. Isaiah recognizes that we grope like the blind along a wall, groping like those who have no eyes. And of course, Bartimaeus's main problem is that he is actually physically blind. Now, Bartimaeus was physically blind, but the Gospels use blindness often as a larger uh, symbol for something else, namely spiritual blindness or a lack of understanding. You'll, know, you'll remember Jesus calls the Pharisees blind guides elsewhere. The difference is that their sight uh, in the Gospels is not typically restored, um, spiritually speaking. But this spiritual blindness is a way of describing our natural state of ignorance regarding the truth that undergirds our universe. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, Those who are unspiritual do not receive the gifts of God's Spirit, for they are, they are foolishness to them, and they are unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 2 Corinthians 4 says, uh, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As evidenced by our Isaiah reading, one of the symptoms of spiritual blindness is to assume that what's wrong with the world is out there. If only we changed X, Y, and Z, this social problem, that politician who holds an office, uh, whatever else might, we might think to change, then everything will be good. Yet this impulse masks the reality that each one of us has a tendency to go away from God, not just to run away from God, like you know Jonah in the boat uh, is, is trying to get away from God's presence, but, but rather we're antagonistic towards God in our natural state. We are rebellious in our search for autonomy. But if we shift the guilt in our minds to larger cultural problems besides ourselves, then it makes us feel a tad bit better at the end of the day. So that's kind of our natural inclination to do that. And that's the major difference between physical and spiritual blindness. F physical blindness is often evident. In fact, it's pretty obvious if you can't see or not. But spiritual blindness is not so easy to recognize because we often lull ourselves into the facade that we do in fact have sight, spiritually speaking. But the second aspect that our Old Testament lesson and our gospel lesson share is the theme of divine initiative. Divine initiative is just a way of saying that in both passages, God is the first one to move towards us, not vice versa. We can't move to God on our own, of our own volition, but God has to move towards us first. And Isaiah, the author, realizes, and, and I think he has this realization uh, not from his own perspective, but because God is speaking to him, but he recognizes that the trouble isn't out there, but the trouble is in here. For our transgressions before you are many, and our sins testify against us. 
Similarly, the blind man, Bartimaeus, doesn't go to Jesus on his own. Christ's presence is what makes Bartimaeus cry out to him, and he's able to do that no matter what the people around him tell him. And so how does Bartimaeus respond to Christ's presence? By uttering the beautiful prayer, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. When we realize our own spiritual blindness, we're realizing our sinfulness compared to God's holiness. There's no more room for self-justification in that moment. We don't wax eloquent to offer excuses in an attempt to make ourselves feel better in that moment. I mean, we can, but it's not going to work. The only response once we come into an awareness of our condition is the admission that we can't go forward on our own and to throw ourselves at the mercy of God. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Which, by the way, is where the prayer, the the Jesus prayer in Orthodox circles comes from, and that's a great prayer to pray the Anglican Rosary with. Rod Dreher, who's the author of The Benedict Option, which is a book that we've done a book study on within the past year or two now, he has another book called How Dante Saved My Life. And in this book, he talks about how his family uh, moved back to rural Louisiana after living in New York City. He had been a journalist for a number of years. Um, he was Roman Catholic, and he was actually one of the ones who really covered the, the sex abuse scandals in the early 2000s. And because of the way he was treated by fellow Catholics, he actually left the Catholic Church and became Eastern Orthodox um, because he just, he just received a lot of hate for reporting on these terrible things that were happening. So anyway, so, so that all happens in the early 2000s, and then his sister died. And so they moved back to rural Louisiana as a way to help uh, his, her children, uh, to raise her children. And moving back drug up all these past traumas in his life that reflected family tensions and conflict. And, you know, he had sort of moved to the big city as a means of escaping uh, some of his familial situations. And, um, and at this juncture, uh, when he moves back and this con- conflict is coming back to the surface, a spiritually blind person would seek to figure out what was wrong with everyone else in the situation. Well, his problem is this. Her problem is that. His problem is this. But that's not quite what Dreher does. And his autobiographical memoir details how he was simultaneously going to confession with his Orthodox priest while also reading Dante's Divine Comedy and all the spiritual lessons that he was learning from the two, which are kind of ironic that those are the two sources that are informing him moving forward, given the kind of tension between uh, Orthodox theology and Dante's theology. But but, uh, the one thing that he really began to see was what was wrong within himself. So rather than blaming something outside of himself, he began to see places inside himself that needed to be changed. And guess what one of the things that the Orthodox priest told him to do every single day? Pray the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he told, this priest told Roger to pray this prayer somewhere around 300 to 400 times a day. That's a lot of times. And to us, that might sound like a little bit overly repetitive, maybe even vain repetition. But the purpose wasn't to say the prayer three or 400 times so that you could check off a box and say, well, God loves me now that I've said this prayer 400 times. The purpose of saying the prayer was to inculcate in Dreher an understanding about who he is, a sinner desperately needing to constantly return to the mercy of God, Jesus Christ. Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Again, it's easy to complain about the problems out there. 
And those problems do exist. I mean, we saw that in this most recent anti-Semitic shooting in the Pittsburgh synagogue. And we should mourn, and we should weep, and we should be angry at the injustices out there. But we shouldn't use those things to obfuscate what's going on in here. We shouldn't allow what happens out there or what other people do that might be evil or depraved or wicked, we shouldn't allow that to give us an inflated view of ourselves. Well, at least I'm not that person, which is something that we are constantly doing. The more confident we are in ourselves, the less confident we are about the cross and the cross's power to work change in our lives because we've shifted the, the impetus for initiative off of God and onto ourselves. And that brings us to the last parallel between our two readings, which is confidence. In Isaiah, the author goes through this progression of realizing that the problem isn't out there, but in here. But far from being nihilistic or hopeless at this realization, it breeds in him a kind of confidence, a confidence that Yahweh will act. He will come to Zion as redeemer and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, he proclaims in verse 20. Bartimaeus expresses a similar confidence, first in his calling out to Jesus, the son of David, but also in the way that he leaps to his feet, casting off his cloak and bounds towards Jesus. It's, it's somewhat reminiscent of Peter's uh, moments where he gets a little overly excited as well. But this faith that Bartimaeus expresses in that moment is what makes him well, according to Jesus. Now, Wednesday is not only Halloween, but also Reformation Day. So I would be remiss if I didn't point out that one of the chief and most beautiful contributions of the reformers is that faith isn't derived from within ourselves. You don't create faith. You don't muster it up. You don't believe hard enough. This is hard to comprehend and digest in modern America, where we're always told to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Faith is a gift that's given to us by none other than God himself. And in that faith that he gives us, we receive the righteousness of Christ because only he could pay the penalty that we owe because of our manifold sins and wickedness, like the prayer book says. And his payment of our sins on the cross is only possible because he took on our flesh. He became one of us so that we might take on his divinity. And in this way, our Isaiah reading is highly messianic. He will come to Zion as redeemer to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. Blind Bartimaeus had the gift of physical sight to always remind him of the action that Jesus took on his behalf that day. It was, his sight was an ongoing testimony to divine action. The ancient Israelites in the Old Testament had Passover as an ongoing reminder for them about what God did at the parting of the Red Sea as he was bringing them out of slavery and into the land that he had for them. Yet to the ancient mind, memory doesn't quite mean the same thing to them as it does to us. Memory to us in the modern world is almost like leaving the present to go back to the past. We like to revisit things in that way. We're a nostalgic people, which is perhaps why Hollywood can't make an original movie these days. They are constantly remaking uh, old, many beloved films. 
the past stays in the past, and so the best we can do is just kind of leave the present for a bit and visit it. Yet to the ancients, remembering was the opposite. Remembering was bringing the past into the present to make it alive again. So the Exodus took on these layered meanings to Jews who are celebrating it generations and generations after the original event had occurred. But what do, what do those of us who have received spiritual healing, who have been given a spiritual sight after being spiritually blind, what do we have? How are we reminded of God's actions on our behalf? And you probably already know where I'm going with this, but we're reminded of that in the sacraments. In baptism and the Lord's Supper, we're constantly reminded that God has decisively acted. If you've been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you are a member of the church. You can always look on that baptism, no matter if you're on the highest of spiritual highs or in the lowest of spiritual lows, and you can look back and remember that God has acted on your behalf. And by the way, the reason that we have a basin of water up here by the altar is so that we're constantly reminded of our baptism. So you can anywhere remember that you were baptized, and that can certainly be helpful, but here we have a way for you to continually swim in the waters of your baptism. You'll see people sometimes when they enter the church make a beeline for the baptismal font, dip their fingers in, and maybe cross themselves. Not because it's some kind of superstitious activity or because if they do it enough times, God will love them a little bit more. It's not because of that. It's a reminder to themselves, to ourselves, that God has worked. And in the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate week after week after week, we remember the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for us. But it's not exclusively a past tense phenomenon. His sacrifice is not repeated again. He's not re-crucified in the Eucharist as some medieval Roman Catholics had believed. His sacrifice was the propitiation not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, sufficient for all of sinners throughout all of history. Yet in the Eucharist, that sacrifice that occurred on Calvary originally is brought into the present. It's made a reality for us. And so both baptism and the Lord's Supper remind us, testify to the wonderful, beautiful reality that I once was blind, but now I see. So today, come to the altar with your eyes wide open, full of awe, full of wonder of what God has done for you. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Ghost, amen.